within a successful uh, team and every successful team I've ever been a part of, it's that there's clarity on what a person's role is mm. and that they have the autonomy to do that role uh, as, as well as they can. And that needs to be built on trust. It isn't all about doing things as quickly as possible. It's about thinking more about what's actually influencing good decisions, yeah. what's influencing bad decisions. How do you build more consistency? And what are the things within your performance that you could think you can improve? And he said, it's just like, boom, he said, consistency. And, he, and I said, you think that getting to 8% or 7% is going to improve your consistency? He said, well, probably not. People's lives change so significantly and so positively for those who buy into that process. Mm. But still, not everybody does. And I am looking to try and become more effective at bringing more people onto that journey. Hi everyone, this is Dr. Josh Williamson and you're listening to episode 9 of the Complete Performance Podcast. More than ever people are struggling with poor energy, suboptimal health and are wanting to perform at the best for everything they want to achieve in their life. Today I sat down with performance nutritionist and best-selling author Daniel Davey. You can hear in this conversation that Daniel has such a passion for nutrition, from how local farming and produce has been a central component to his life, right through to how he helps the high performers he works with. So please help me in welcoming this week's guest, Daniel Davy. Daniel, how are you? I'm good. I'm keeping well? I sure am. I sure am. Yeah, I'm keeping really well. Thank you. Yeah, we had a brief chat there, but you've got a very, very busy schedule ahead and <laughs> on all aspects. Yeah, I um, I had a, a baby girl uh, last week, um, so it, re- it helps to realign your priorities and it, it helps you to become very focused on how you spend your time. Um, yeah. But it's a, it's definitely it's the best part of life. Yeah, yeah. I often find it's it's almost your your greatest worries, but also your greatest you know joy as well. Definitely, there's uh, plenty of different types of challenges, and it it puts being a being a parent puts your head into a very different space. You have a whole it's all the cliches, but it, you have a whole different level of responsibility with the way that you spend your time and like a big big part of it for me is even my mood like I, I I find it so interesting that I I don't really feel that I have the option of being in bad mood being in bad humor because that has the potential of impacting my family and impact, impacting my kids and I have almost this obligation now to be in the best form I can be in and um that's uh that's interesting particularly when you're challenged with lots of work and sleepless nights yeah yeah i totally agree it's it's strange almost moving to that role where you are given like a standard for your kids and i'm sure that you've got really fond memories of the examples that your own parents gave you and now you're trying to fill that role as well and yeah as you said when times are challenging and when you're stressed with work it's you almost have to get those virtues almost it teaches you how to be patient and you know exactly empathetic and compassionate and all that it teaches it, it, it taught me a lot though about 
a, about the choices that you have every day. And even when, like, I'm not a good morning person. And traditionally, if I had a bad night's sleep, it could take me till 11 o'clock to come around. But, you know, you got to get your head straight within 10 minutes awake <laughs> in the morning, no matter how little sleep you've had. Uh, but you realize it is actually a choice too. You know, you've got a choice to just accept you didn't have a good night's sleep and you're going to try and get to bed earlier tonight. And it really forces your, your thought process. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the, the challenge that I always have as well is we do make these choices, but sometimes we have to burn the candle at both ends, especially when you're maybe self-employed and uh, if kids get sick or if your schedule gets thrown out, you have to make up the time somewhere else. And that can come at the detriment of other aspects. Without question. It was funny. Um, I was at the doctor last week for something and, uh, he said to me, he said, um, you have some of the symptoms of being a bit uh, burnt out or a bit run down. And I said, do I? <laughs> he said, have you much going on in your life? And I said, um, well, I had a baby this week. Um, I've launched uh, a book. I've launched some programs. Uh, I'm not getting an awful lot of sleep, but no, no other than that. <laughs> and um, he said, well, he, he said, you're still working. I, I had it was gastroenteritis and I probably hadn't slept properly in, in three days. And he said, I, you know, are you working? And I said, of course I'm working. And he just nodded his head. He said, so you don't need a sick note or anything. <laughs> no, <laughs> what the hell is that? <laughs> like people get sick notes for being off work. And I, like, that's just a different world. That's just yeah. alien to me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it is, it's, it's, it changes your perspective completely, doesn't it? When you just have to get on with it. Exactly. Um, exactly. But I guess I want to get, that's what I want to get sort of stuck into is, you know, how does a, how does a young farmer from the West coast of Ireland end up producing, you know, such a fantastic team of nutritionists, but producing books and all of this here that what you're known for. Uh, it starts with an idea. Uh, it starts with growing um, a belief in in values and growing a belief in that you can do it. And uh, I think if I was, if I was, when you write a book or when you write at all, what it does is it forces you to think about where these thoughts come from or where these words that are coming out and how you're putting them on on paper or what what's what's helped you to to form those and there's again you, you know you're watching the movies or you're watching a documentary and often it's a negative connotation or if you're here on the news and you hear about a, a really you know difficult situation in a family's life or something has happened people will often say well that person had a difficult childhood <laughs> but i i think about it from the perspective of my of the the positive influence of my childhood mm -hmm. and this idea that from a very very young age that whether it be playing football or it being going on to to do something in work there was always a sense that I, I, I could do it. And it, it's, it never, it hasn't, 
unfolded exactly how I had hoped, but I remember watching football matches and saying, I want to be on that pitch. I want to have that jersey on and um, I'm willing to do what it takes to to get there. And um, it's different experiences at different times, overcoming small obstacles and then growing that belief over time and, and believing, geez, I actually, I can do this. Um, and then a really important part, you mentioned team, a really important part uh, of all of this is how do you work best and what environment do you need to create uh, to work at your best? And I have always loved being a part of a team. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's something that I think it'd be quite difficult to start you know, when you come from a, being an athlete, it, it's almost, you know, second nature that we're involved in a team. But I think when you become like you have starting as a one man band and then having to sort of relinquish some of that control, it's like, well, will that person do it the way I want it? Will they speak the way I want? But also, what if they do it better than me? <laughs> and I think you're sort of hitting it's, you know, relying on the things you really enjoy doing and having that strength of a team that you've known from a very young age whether it's on the pitch or now maybe in the background managing it's those different aspects isn't it the thing that i've learned is that uh, your team will do certain things way better than you mm. and then there are things that you can help them improve on and that's the actual emotion and that's the experience that you're looking for and Within a successful uh, team and every successful team I've ever been a part of, it's that there's clarity on what a person's role is mm. and that they have the autonomy to do that role uh, as, as well as they can. And that needs to be built on trust. Yeah. But yeah, I do not want, and this is the thing, you know, you, you mentioned the fear associated that uh, with the brand not being well rep as represented as if you were delivering that content or delivering that piece of information, but that's actually not what I'm looking for. Yeah. I'm looking for them to base whatever information that they are sharing on our agreed values around evidence, practicality, uh, around it being achievable and sustainable and to, you know, to the person. And once they use those values, I'm, happy for them to create their their own vision for that and uh that's what's really exciting to watch that emerge yeah yeah it's having that shared shared common value structure while also giving the autonomy to develop in a, a way that brings their own sort of creativity to the to the role that they're playing within the team yeah, yeah i really like yeah. that yeah and it's interesting you say values because it's something that i don't think a lot of people talk about or even even think about and you know you, you had a really good sentimental part of the the your your recent book of you know how much that's played within your life with your upbringing and the role that your dad played and your mom being you know very much the the cook in the house and your dad being the farmer what what sort of role did that play in your approach to, to food and cooking and how's that sort of changed or maybe strengthened how you approach things now moving forward well, I didn't know what values were either. Mm. And it was only as I started to work in team sport over time and you hear 
the teams that you work with talk about humility and mm -hmm. you hear people talking about uh, improvement and sometimes the word ruthlessness and <laughs> there's this sense that if you want to be successful and you want to sustain success you need that ruthlessness and then I realized I was surrounded by values from from when I was a baby from when I was a child I just didn't realize that that's what that's what values were you know I didn't realize that something like uh, homegrown um, or you know uh, efficiency and not wasting food and the sharing and things like that that these were that these were important values that I was surrounded with but I was taught it was told every day about them mm -hmm. and then you realize oh that there's values around everything you know the the whole thing about uh, even sleep it, what are your values around sleep? Do you have a structure and uh, attention to how you prepare your body for sleep? Do you have, do you have a schedule around sleep? So there's all that you go, oh my God, there's values everywhere in every aspect of our lifestyle. Yeah. So it's actually getting people to think about them and getting people to create their own values and their own vision for their behaviors uh, for themselves and when they do that the just how empowering that is and mm -hmm. how much more accountable people feel to themselves and how much more sustainable the practice is so it's 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 a completely different depth mm -hmm. um but it has a, a tremendous opportunity it, prov it, it, it provides this tremendous opportunity for people to create this sustainable vision for their for their behaviors and then i keep talking about the outcome of that yeah. being how they live how they perform how they look physically yeah yeah i think there's a there's a lot to, to unpack in that and it's something that i really i've only sort of delved into it probably like yourself over the last number of years that you realize that these values have, are being around you for from childhood and then you start to develop your own value structure but i think that the realization is that sometimes we live in alignment with other people's values and that's where the the conflict almost happens and we don't feel fulfilled or satisfied and when we start actually understanding and be aware of well what actually is important to me as an individual and how can i align my actions with that that everything sort of clicks and falls into place and you're like this is what I should be doing or this is what I want to be doing as opposed to some sort of external source trying to validate how we how we act hmm. which I think is interesting it is and one of the things that I I suppose it'd be great to start like this when you let's say you talk about your life partner you're talking about a relationship imagine if in the first couple of dates you're having with somebody you say well look at <laughs> here are my values. <laughs> I don't know what your values are, but these are my values. How do our values match up? And maybe that's what we should start with instead of, I think that's, I was going to say, I think you're really hot. <laughs> imagine if, imagine if people go, well, what, what are your, what's your value structure around money? You know, yeah. uh, because you know, it's, it's, it, it's, it has such a big impact on on your ability to be compatible and very often like you said the the most 
the, the, the biggest thing that comes to mind in, in our, in my home and in my relationship was I'm creative, easygoing, relaxed. I'm, I'm punctual, mm. but I don't need to be at the airport two and a half hours before my flight. I'm practical. That hour can be used somewhere else. Mm. I don't want to be faffing about. Whereas my wife wants to be there. She'd be there the day before if she could. <laughs> And she would have an idea of what that looks like, but the thought she would have think she would think about the potential for traffic, the security line, the queue to get her coffee. You know, what if there's an issue with the baggage? She would have thought about fifteen things that could cause extra time, um, and, and for us to be potentially late or delayed. Whereas I'm like, the chances of any of that happening are so so low, and I value my time being spent at home on this i could get a gym session in before we go (laughs) that's more important to me than potentially being late so we didn't address those things but early on but as time goes on you're like okay look i'm not willing to be at the airport three hours before but i am willing to be there an extra hour earlier than i'd normally be and i'll try and get some work done and it's that kind of compromise that you're that you're looking for yeah I, it's so funny because we're exactly the same and i think naturally when you're you're a young single guy you're, you are quite selfish in a lot of yeah, ways yeah and just yeah. like like you said that when me and my partner got together we had sort of completely different things not that we had completely different values but just like you'd explained there that maybe the punctuality is slightly different but the way that we always see it and discuss about it is you almost like level each other out so i know that for me i was very non-compassionate non-empathetic and over time that's been leveled a little bit and that that helps you know other aspects of my life as well especially in dealing with athletes or clients because you do approach them in a more understanding that you don't know everything and you know having that other perspective coming into your life and balancing Mm -hmm. a little bit i think really helps Mm -hmm. i think the main thing to take away from it is that there is a role to play here for our values and being aware of them and and how do we align our actions to those yeah and i think this again there's a certain level of maturity that Mm. uh, you need to have a certain element of you need to be open-minded to the to the concept and i feel like uh it's like um you hear words like mindfulness or you hear words like wellness and you might begin to hear things like values and it can kind of dilute how important these things are when they're just thrown around with any type of of context. But if you can be really specific with what that means and if you can make it simple and practical for people to identify yeah. what that, what, what that could mean to them, then that's really valuable. And, uh, that that's what is so challenging about our industry in, in sport and nutrition and performance, because uh, we're, we're so interested in it. You know, we've got the world mm. cup on and there's all of these things where you just, everyone is really fascinated with sport and, mm. and it's, 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 it's things that happen with the, at a very superficial level that people tend to initially engage with. And that can, you know, that can have, people be more interested in it or, or less and kind of switch off yeah i think that's it's probably a point that a lot of people just don't recognize and certainly as like from a practitioner standpoint when you start throwing things around like mindfulness and values i don't even do that 
in the first month or two or even a couple of months because as you said even with nutrition people struggle to grasp it and yet it has to be practical it has to be able to be relatable to their actual life and if you start throwing around you need to eat 200 grams protein per se most people don't even know what that looks like they don't, they don't know what 30 yes. grams of protein looks yes. like i know i know and if you start throwing around values and having a value structure it's like you're losing them even more so i think the, the biggest takeaway point there is it it needs to be at a time that they're ready for it they need to be open for it but also it needs to be they need to see where they can see the the benefit from it in a yeah. way that's easy to understand yeah i i um <clears throat> I think a very interesting way to start is to actually begin to have conversations, even with people in your own circles of, you know, if, have you come across this whole thing about having values? <laughs> what does that mean to you? You know, even if people go, I don't know, what are you on about? You know, even if you begin to go, I wonder if this is a value. I wonder if that's, that's I mean, it's just an interesting starting point. Yeah, it, it opens the conversation. It opens the conversation. Yeah. Um. Just to delve into the new book, Daniel, where did the second book come from and, and what's the response been so far on it? I am going to uh, answer that question with uh, the, the conversation that uh, I had yesterday. I was sitting uh, in a coffee shop with one of my team and they asked me, about that, that second book and where it came from and also how is the book going is the question that you'll you'll get and the way that the book came about is you write a first book uh, it was a, a it was a it was a big success i'm absolutely delighted to say it was a big success and the publisher then the publishing company then hound you to write a second one because the first one was a success and I'm going absolutely no chance. <laughs> <laughs> no way am I going to write a second book with how much work went into the first one and how much is in it. Yeah. And then eventually kind of time goes by and you go, do I have something of value? And I, I was always of the mindset that there was no way I would write a second book unless I had a concept and ideas that would be better than the first one. Yeah. So I asked the publisher what the process was, you know, what brings about a really good second book? And they said, they didn't really have that much advice for me, except listen to your audience and start to, you know, would you use focus groups and things like that? And I said, oh, no, I don't think I'd do that. But what I started to do is really think about the conversations I was having mm. and how my conversations were evolving. And they've evolved so much more into what are people really looking to achieve and do they understand what's driving their decisions now? And do they understand the system or the approach that's needed to change how they make those decisions? So it's a very much a mindset approach to how, how we eat. But if you have a really good vision and what you're working towards and the behaviors of what you're working towards, then it's far easier to create a pathway to do that. Mm -hmm. So I talk about all the elements that are, that are in there to, to achieve that um, based on the, the conversations that I've been having that have been in some cases life-changing for people. So it's, that's been really exciting. And then I've added the extra level of knowledge around nutrition for injury, nutrition to support immunity, 
the extra detail around nutrition within the recipes. So that that it's the it's I keep saying it's it's not a recipe book. Like it is a nutrition book with all the practical applications of evidence-based uh, nutrition. So then comes the conversation that I had in the coffee shop when they said, you know, how is it going? And my response was, I put more time and effort and energy and thought into the first section, which I've just described. Mm. Um, then I, then, well, more thought than even all of the great recipes that are in there. And for me, you get, you have this bias towards what you want people to read, because if you read that and you engage with that part of the book, then you're far less, you're far more likely to build in consistency. You're far more likely to be an awful lot more consistent with, with your nutrition. Mm. But I said, I think most people are, are skipping it. You know, I think people just move straight to the recipes and that's what made the first book so, so successful. So I, I, we had this conversation and, um, I, I went to get a coffee or something and I checked my, my phone and I had this message on my phone from somebody because I just explained I was a bit frustrated that maybe people weren't diving into the first section. And the message was, Daniel, I just want to say uh, you've knocked it out of the park with your second book. I really liked the fact that it made me and I'm reading out the message. It really made me go away and think about what my actual mental connection with my nutrition is. Mm. The question, why do I eat the way that I eat? What do I understand about how I approach my nutrition? Is it just something that I'm following or something that I've been told what to do? So it's really made me think about it. And that is exactly why I wrote the second book and what I'm looking to achieve. But it's harder to get people to engage in that first part. I think it sort of touches on what we discussed at the start there, just about sport in general, that you get into sport for that superficial reason people maybe are attracted to your content because of the recipes, but that opens a larger conversation for, well, what is it about these recipes that's actually want you to have them? Why are you unhappy with your current level of eating? Why do you think it needs to change? And then that builds that connection of, well, it's not just about how many calories we have and carb load and all this. There's a, there's a deeper meaning behind that. And so I think having that message is just sort of almost reinforcement that, there's the reason why we wrote the second book. There's the reason. Yeah. And sorry. Um, when I, uh, you know, the, what, what was the feedback? What was the, what was the number one thing that came back from the first book? Simplicity, yeah. ease, access, uh, easy to follow all of these type of things. Yeah. And what I, that was ultimately what I'm trying to, uh, that's what I was trying to deliver in that first book. But in the second book, it's, well, hold on, hold on a second. It isn't all about doing things as quickly as possible. It's about thinking more about what's actually influencing good decisions. Yeah. What's influencing bad decisions? How do you build more consistency? And I've used lots of examples from working with athletes mm -hmm. and what their mindset is. Because the, 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 what I, the reason why I am so attracted to working with high performers, I'm not going to say just athletes, it's high performers. It's that they know they don't know it all. 
they know that it's so much more detailed than just hitting that protein target or taking three grams of creatine daily. The conversation never ends. And that's the beauty of it. There's that constant curiosity. Whereas you could speak to somebody else who went, oh no, I was at the nutrition talk or I read that book or, you know, I saw that documentary. That's enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it can be both, I guess, on one side blessing, but also frustrating sometimes as a practitioner when you're dealing with those different people. Um, but the the book is fantastic. And I said to you sort of off her that, I can see a lot of myself resonating in, in, in terms of my own evolution uh, as a practitioner. And I think it'd be interesting to delve into some of those aspects, if that's okay with you. Well, tell me a little bit more from your perspective, you know, what's, what's shaped you. We've talked a little bit about values and pathways. What, what do you feel the parallels or the similarities are? Well, I sort of came out as a, as a practitioner thinking that, I did know it all, <laughs> you know, came out of, as a, of a master's degree in, in nutrition and went on and done a PhD. And I thought, well, I'm going to tell everyone everything that they want to know and was doing plenty of seminars and workshops and, and giving that information. But it just sort of felt as if it was landing on deaf ears as such. And I, I had to spend that time reflecting and thinking, well, what what's working, what's not working? Why isn't this resonating with people? And I was just trying to be the academic as opposed to being that person who's relatable and understanding and being an athlete myself, you know, and sitting through whether it's strength and conditioning or nutrition talks, it's like, it's great that the knowledge is coming, but how does that fit into my actual day-to-day life? And over the years, I've really changed the way that I deliver workshops now where I don't really give a lot of figures anymore. I don't talk about, you know, you have to track your macros and put everything that's in your mouth into here. It's it's about the experience of eating itself. Are we actually enjoying our food? What's the difference between being full and being satisfied? Because I don't think people realize that those are two different things. Um, the emotional connection that we have to food. You know, I always tell people that from the day you're born, literally you're in this nice wee cocoon, we water bath, all nice and warm, you're ripped out and it's freezing cold, you have bright lights, you have people all around you, it's stress. And what's the very first thing that people do is hear some milk. And so even from birth, we have this strong emotional connection with with food. And in any it's situation throughout life, whether it's grief and loss and celebration, graduations, birthdays, there's food in between. And so it's not as easy as telling people just eat this. It's the deeper connection to food that we have the the social interactions with food the the reason why we eat why we we can sometimes struggle with those things and even more recently what i've seen is especially in sport is that you have this idea of athletes they're almost their whole identity is wrapped up in i am the athlete but also i'm trying to fulfill the social norms our social standards and ideals of well, this is what Instagram says is sexy and attractive, but also on this side, I have to be the athlete and I'm afraid of gaining muscle, but I also need to be thin and, you know, all the trends that you see. Mm. And so in athletes, you have like this almost dichotomy of trying to support performance, but also struggling with eating, struggling with body image, struggling with even trusting professionals that 
if you fuel your body the way it should, that you're not going to gain weight or it's not going to change things. And I think a lot of my work over the last four or five years has been that mindset side of things, the psychology side of things, mm. as opposed to giving people a set plan to follow because mm. that's that, that's not going to solve anything, mm. you know? And how have you found the responses to it as you've evolved your practice? It's definitely been a lot more meaningful. I think once people get over the, because you know when you, work, when you work with people, it's in their head, they have a vision of, this is going to be three months or six months or 12 months. And it's almost, I need to look like an athlete at the end of that period or whatever. But once you get over that initial month or so, when you do start having these deeper conversations and, and, and they start piecing together different aspects of their life that, okay, well, maybe there is more to this than just food that the response is just, it's night and day. Mm. I would say that the, because I spend more time talking about those decisions, the relationships that I have with, with people I work with have become a lot deeper. The conversations become a lot more transparent and open. Mm. They do start approaching things with that lens of curiosity as opposed to mm. judgment. And I, it's just completely shaped how just my overall approach with, with working with people, it's mm. yes, this might be where we want to be as a high performer, but there's a lot of steps to get to there and a lot of reasons why we're maybe not there. And it's important to understand those first mm -hmm. and people really appreciate that. And a question I have for you, because it's a question my team and I are talking about every single week mm. is have you come up with a good pathway to align people's expectations to their progress? that people know where they are on that pathway it's a great question because up until very recently mm. it was in our heads and we know where what what that looks like but mm. we've we've spent hours and hours and weeks and weeks now trying to create a pathway where they understand values, mm. understand vision, begin to adopt behaviors, begin to uh, in, in, invest in reflection, spend time in reflection, begin to formulate a nutrition plan, you know, and that they, but we didn't, we didn't have that. And I'm just wondering, did you have something that communicated that effectively with people you worked with? I think it's been sort of an evolution as such. And because I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily do a lot of work with teams. I would do more individuals and people who are in teams would, would then contact me individually. And the way I always sort of frame it is that, say you told me your, your address for your house, that, okay, I know where to go, but I can take different routes along that way to get there. I can take the scenic route and go down the coast. We can stop off nice place, get a nice ice cream, enjoy it. Or we can go the fastest route there, but there's many different routes to get there. And having a, a conversation to very start around, well, firstly, what what is progress? You know, what is progress to you? And a lot of people, depending on what their background is, it might be, oh, it's an increase in my actual performance. And it might be, well, what does that look like? Or it could be a weight loss target. 
And then we start opening the conversation of, well, do you think the progress could also be more knowledge around food? Could it be more confidence in your decision making? Could it be more autonomy? And then they start to realize that, well, there is more to this than just the food side of things. And then beyond that, it's, well, okay, well, how fast do you think this is going to happen? What's what's the rate of that progress? And then we start putting it into perspective and, and challenging where those came from, because a lot of the time I find that clients base their expectations off either sort of false narratives, things that you maybe see on social media of the eight-week shred, and that's where it is, or that this athlete now plays for county level, and this is what they've done. And sort of reframing that, that, well, we don't know their whole journey. We're seeing a snippet the same way that, and it's an interesting one, it, it sort of ties in with this in a way that if I'm having people who maybe struggle with body image and, and that type of thing, it's, we'll go through your social media. Let's go through your feed. How many photos are you smiling in, but you know on that occasion that you were feeling terrible or you had a fight with your partner or whatever. And so even the client themselves realize that, okay, well, there's a false expectation that I'm promoting. So why wouldn't other people be doing that as well? And so then it becomes this interesting conversation and this very transparent conversation around, well, what is progress to us? Do we have these different markers? And then how do we assess that along the way? And that for me, like a lot of my work with clients is more reflective based because that's where they really understand it and see when you have their black and white and you've been working with someone for six months, it's like, well, there it is. There's where we were day one and now we're here. And I think that that's very important for them because my role as a coach isn't I'm coming, you need to come to my level. It's I'm only here to support you make that change. And I can understand now, uh, as you described, our, you know, the, the parallels or the similarities. And I have to say that it's, it's very refreshing to hear, particularly when we live in a world where some of the biggest voices in our industry say the exact opposite. Mm. And that's, that's really, really challenging. But the only thing I, I would say uh, in response is that, is that has been my model for a number of years now and what i can't help get frustrated with i suppose i'm not trying to unload here on you on you josh but <laughs> what i can't help with with um becoming frustrated with is having people's lives change so significantly and so positively for those who buy into that process mm. but still not everybody does and I am looking to try and become more effective at bringing more people onto that journey. Because what you're talking about, you're not doing it with hundreds and hundreds of people. Like that's, yeah. it's, you're talking about a huge investment uh, one at a time mm. and what needs to happen. And that's, that's the, 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 the reason why I'm talking about this framework or this pathway is because I think people need to see it. I think it needs to align people's expectations and if we can begin to align people's expectations to what progress looks like and the speed of progress and what reflection is, then we're going to start having far better conversations and, and much more meaningful, like, as you said, on a larger scale. Yeah. And I, I would say the exact same, that how do you reach those large numbers? How do you scale something like that? 
And I think there's, you know, I've tried to think myself, like, how do you do it? And, you know, without, because at the same time, even if you build a team out, you're still working with those small numbers. But how do you build something that is sustainable and scalable, but also gives that degree of maybe individual support that's needed? And that's, I think that's the challenge. It is. But it it also has to come back to, you know, we talked, we started right at the beginning. We started about where, let's say, I, I'm from and values and values being all around us. Like, let's say, if, let's take food as a, as a simple one. If the price of food increases three times, yeah. I am still going to invest in that good food, yeah. even if it's three times more expensive than it currently is. That is my value. Yeah. So it's the same as somebody else going, I don't care if a box of cigarettes goes to 30 euros. I'm still going to buy that box of cigarettes or alcohol or other foods. My value system is aligned to nutrition because I see it as a long-term investment in my mm. health. My dad always talked about the time, energy, resources, natural resources, human resources, money that needs to go into producing food. Yeah. So right from a child, as that, uh, I began to go, oh, my God, the production of one egg, the production yeah. of a liter of milk, so much goes into it. Yeah. Whereas somebody else goes, that's 90 cent in the shop. Yeah. So what we need to try and do as a practice is, is change people's value on how they invest their time and energy. And just it's a refocus. And I think, you know, hopefully even conversations like this and people listening or maybe that is something that will is food pardon the pardon for thought yeah but i think it i think sometimes we can be really critical of ourselves because even if we think you know if if we think that the whole like trickle down you know analogy if you're one person but you now have six people under you and you're teaching them the sort of same values and they're they're distributing that content as well and you know we have the the ability of reach now but let's say that only six people took on board from each of those people and that very very quickly and very exponentially grows so it might feel that yes day in day out it's very very difficult but i think when you're dealing with things as deep-rooted as values you know you're talking about things that have been there from childhood but you could be talking to someone who's 30 years old who hasn't had that and then at 30 years old, they're like, okay, well, now I'm struggling. And you're having to try and almost refocus them or recenter them in, well, what are your values? And you're trying to almost go against the current of 30 years of ingrained belief. And I think that is challenging. Mm. And I also think on the other side that some people either just aren't ready for the change yet. You know yourself as well, that when you're working with a team, the top 25% are like, I am bought into this. The middle 50 are like, I'm doing it because I'm here and I really want to improve, but if I do it, I'll do it. And then you have 25% who just aren't bought in and they may or may not do it. So even, right. even within a, an athletic setup, mm. it can be difficult where they see the value and know the value of it, never mind yeah. the wider population. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to insert book here. <laughs> the The book above the line talks about that brilliantly. I've modeled some of my my strategies on it. I've read it twice. A great book above the line. Yeah, I must. I haven't heard of that one. 
it, 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 it's almost you've almost paraphrased some of it um it's uh it's written by just went out of my head urban meyer People. anyone that's interested in team sport it is a brilliant read mm. do you think that just with the world that we're in i this is certainly my experience and it's it's probably just indicative of where i was when i first started out but i would do a lot of talks now with clubs and work with a lot of individuals and it's the same thing you get all the time is and i don't know if it's just coming you're really social media driven and this shift towards evidence-based practice and evidence-based nutrition but do you think that people almost miss the forest for the trees at times when they get so focused on well here's my protein target and then maybe fall 30 grams short like realistically that 30 grams isn't going to do make a difference but now because everything has to be evidence-based it's it's almost become all or nothing now and they just miss 90% of what's going to make a difference for that 5 or 10%. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I don't know what else to say, Only It is... You talked about the different percentages. Sometimes what you have is... It's a smaller percentage, but you have a small percentage of a group that become totally obsessive mm. and they become really concerned about not, you know, if the target for fruit and vegetables is seven and they've missed a portion, they're worried about that. Or like you talked about protein, they think because they've not consumed their protein target that their muscles are going to shrink. <laughs> you know, there's all of these things that get into people's heads and i have to be very honest and say i was one of them when i was a young athlete and a very young practitioner and as time goes on what you realize that hierarchy of nutrition needs is there for very very good reason and uh we it, it comes down to ultimately if you're getting the appropriate amount of calories and you're eating it from a good base of, of un, relatively unprocessed or moderately processed food with plenty of fruit and vegetables, you're actually all right. You're grand. Yeah. Um, I always, I always uh, reference David Katz with his feet, fork and fingers and mm. it's adequate movement, the right amount of energy with adequate fruit and vegetables. Don't smoke and uh, don't consume too much alcohol and you have an 80% 80% lower risk of, of all-cause mortality from a lifestyle-related disease. It's very, very simple. And we, we spend, as nutritionists, most of our time being asked about things like athletic greens and what supplement should we take and what the doses should be when you can throw it in the air, you can use it as shampoo, you can drink it. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things that I really... It does really break my heart to say that nutrition is so it's so overstated in its benefits but it's also so 
Uh, and the opposite end, underappreciated. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. To, the industry overstates its potential, its benefits. Yeah. And then people massively underestimate the, its value. You know, yeah. I, I have this graph where I show people the percentage of their time spent uh, in training. And uh, it's approximately four to 5% for elite athletes yeah. is how much, you know, most of your time is either spent sleeping or, you know, you're doing other things, you're, you're working, but what, what defines you is how you live your life outside of that exercise. But yet people obsess about the exercise component. Yeah. So that's it being hugely undervalued and underestimated. And then it's the people who, who don't want to, like, I, I, I have heard coaches talk about athletes not having I, I i witnessed this i was in a coach's company it's a long time ago but it was in a very high profile coach said to an athlete who was talking about having some champagne um uh, at a new year's party the olympics was three years away and they were like is that going to help you with your chance of of going to the olympics like that's every single decision yeah. that you make and i was going is this this is somebody who's responsible for guiding athletes telling them yeah. something such so nonsensical but that's out there i know and it's it's at that high level that i think is is one of the things that people don't think people think that the athletes are the ones who get in the best of the best when in reality sometimes it's the worst information that you can get absolutely some people in the most powerful positions are talking the most shit yeah it's it's something that it is tough because you know you do work with teams and you work with individuals and even the slightest improvement you know i always find that the number one thing that i work on with athletes outside of all of the stuff that influences our actual decision making is just increasing the amount that they're eating like i don't think i've ever an athlete's ever came to me and i've been like you're perfect it's always need to be increased and they always feel 10 times better and after that, it's really just about refining some small things that might influence performance. But the idea that you're going to get 20 or 30 or 40% increase in your performance from nutrition, is just like, that's just not the case. There's more to performance than your food. Like, yes, if you're under eating, mm. like, you are going to suffer. Mm. But there's plenty of people that we know at the county level, European level, Olympic level, who are like, nutrition is terrible, but they're still going out every week and mm. performing. Well, I have a brilliant example of this. Um, uh, to two years ago, just during COVID, a very, very, very good, high-profile intercounty Gaelic footballer, very ambitious, came to me, and he said, "I want to get down to you know he was ten percent body fat. I want to get down to eight percent body fat in the off season." And I asked him why, and he said, "You know, I want next year to be a big year. I want to make a bigger impact. I want to be a better athlete." Mm -hmm. And I said, do you think, let's talk about this really tangibly now, how is getting to 8%, yeah. that 2%, how is that going to impact your performance? Well, I'm going to be more mobile, I'm going to be lighter. I said, no, it's not. No, it's not. In fact, it may increase your risk of injury. Uh, you're going to be in a calorie deficit in order to achieve that. It's very difficult to maintain. You may become immune compromised. There's lots of these different variables. He said, well, well, I want to improve. I said, of course, I'm not disputing that. Yeah. But I said, 
where is the biggest opportunity for improvement? Do you really think it's in your body composition? Because for me, you're one of the best specimens on the squad. So he, he said, well, what are you suggesting? I said, what would you say about your performances? What are the things within your performance that you could think you can improve? And he said, it's just like, boom, he said, consistency. And, he, and I said, you think that getting to 8% or 7% is going to improve your consistency? And he said, well, probably not. And I said, I think the best thing you can do is speak to more people about the areas that you can improve in your consistency do a proper review of your performances mm. anyway it was extraordinary what happened he went and he spoke i made a i i made some suggestions about people who i respected within the sports arena mm. in performance i said speak to these people and it's been absolutely phenomenal He's gone away with a completely different perspective and sees the scope. He's talking about visualization. You know, he's talking about mapping his season in a completely different way. He's talking about dealing with adversity. He's talking about his movement. He's, you know, it's much, much, much more specific to what's going to help him. But people come to you and I all the time looking for improvements in body composition and thinking nutrition is where is that improvement's going to come from whereas it's actually not yeah. you know it's it's a completely different area of, of attention yeah it's it's funny because i pretty much have the exact same experience with a cyclist who was at you know sort of world championship level and weighing in sort of 58 kilos somewhere in the around there and their approach was well, if I don't eat for a couple of days or really reduce my carbs a couple of days before the race, then I'll be 55 for the for the first stage and I'll be really hilly and I'll be lighter to go up the hills. And you're just like, do you really think that that two or three kilo difference is going to make a difference when it comes to going up the hills? And you know yourself, as cyclists are very data-driven. They're like, oh, yeah, it'll increase my power to weight ratio. And mm. yeah, it might do for the first 30 seconds, but you're climbing here for maybe two hours. Mm. And trying to... It's, it's really it's a difficult conversation because we do have these beliefs around mm. what they think will happen and as you said it's it's just asking that question why why do you why do you think that losing this body fat or losing this weight will help performance yeah. and usually what you find is if you ask why enough times they don't have a solid reason it's just this belief and then it's about challenging that and unpacking it and seeing okay could we try something different? And it usually works out, as you said, much, much more productive for the individual. Yeah. Yeah. And it takes time. It doesn't, it's not, it's usually not, it's more than one conversation, but it's, it's, it's definitely long-term. It has a far greater impact. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's something I always really, and again, the sort of said with my own progression, I don't really talk about numbers anymore. You know, I don't, you know, I went into my very first talk, I think, saying, you know, if you're training X amount, of, X amount of hours per week, you need six grams of carbs. And if you're doing 20 hours, you need 10 to 12 grams. And, and people just looked at you being like, I don't even know what that means. And I was speaking with James Morton when he was with Team Sky and we had this really good conversation. And I was like, well, how do you do it? How do you do it, Team Sky? Like, what's Chris Froome doing? And he was like, Josh, I, I literally just give them a portion control plate, high, medium, low carbs. 
and it depends on what, what session we're doing that day. And I was like, there's no way. And he's like, I'm telling you. And he showed me his phone of just them sending him photos and he'd be like, it's not enough carbs. Like we're doing a, a three hour interval session here. We need more carbs here. Or we're doing a, a six hour, you know, zone two ride. And he'd be like, take the carbs down. And I was like, there's no way I can be that simple. And just over the course of working with people, it is that practicality. It is that accessibility to sort of the stuff that we want to do with athletes, but how do we break it into ways that is applicable to them and relatable? And it's, you yeah. even see it now within like track and macros. It's, I don't know about you, but I don't think I've ever been in a, in a high performance setup where they've got people to be like, track your macros and this is what we have to do. It's no, 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 no. It just doesn't no. work long-term. No, it doesn't. No. And it's one of those things I think as a practitioner, it's understanding the knowledge, but how do you actually translate that to, again, athletes are just everyday people. They're not the superhuman people that we think. And it's how do we actually get that information across in a way that is meaningful? Yeah. And it's a very strong, trustworthy relationship that needs to be nurtured over time. And um, Eva, uh, one of the girls on my team, she's just started working with the Dublin hurling team and she's so excited, so enthusiastic, and she's got so many ideas and she put a huge amount of time and effort into it. And I said to her, what is going to matter is the consistency over time of your exposure and how well you establish positive relationships. That's going to matter. It's not how good your graphics are. It's not going to be your meal plans are. It's not about how much time you're investing right now. It's the consistency. And it's whether people feel that they can come to you when they're struggling. That's what's going to matter. Uh, and like that's, you know, if this, <laughs> I don't know if many uh, practitioners listen to this, but it's, it's hard to do that and to, even when you think that you know that I'll never forget one of the Dublin footballers when I started saying we'll see where you are in four months <laughs> that's and I never forgot it yeah. because all I kept thinking was my practice is going to be better in four months time than it is now yeah because their experience was you know that there's this huge ebb and flow um, and you, you need that consistency. Mm. One of the things that is always stuck by me, and I heard it years ago, maybe about five years ago, and it really changed the way I approach working with people, was that people don't care how much that you know. They just care. No, they don't. They just want to know, do you care about them as individuals, yeah. as basic humans? And then that, that transparency, that trust, that relationship grows, and you understand then, well, where is this person at and what can you actually get them to do? So you said they don't care about having these nice graphics and they don't care about how many letters you have after the name. It's do you just actually understand my situation and are you empathetic towards it? And once they know that you care, it's like that makes so much more, yeah, you know, effective practice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Daniel, I appreciate your time. I just want to wrap, wrap up a guest with maybe one of your own anecdotes what sort of client or what team 
has gave you the biggest lesson over your career? Uh, I, I genuinely, uh, there's about, I've jumped to six in the space of <laughs> the, those couple of seconds that I was, that I paused for, I'll give you two ends of the spectrum. Uh, I went into a consultation with a, a woman. Um, I saw her, her, uh, her pre-consultation form and her food diary was just one of the most incredible I'd ever seen in terms of nutrient density, in terms of variety. She was growing her own herbs. She trained uh, four hours uh, a day. She was a triathlete. She was looking for improvements. She, she was looking for these marginal improvements, you know, drop one kilo or so. That was her, her target. But she was just, I've never seen you you just said you'd never seen the perfect nutrition um, food diary or 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 how would you say somebody executing really really the just a perfect nutrition strategy. But this is as close to it as I'd ever seen. I thought, oh my god, I'm wasting this moment's time. It was a couple of years ago, and I went into the meeting, had a great chat with her, and then she said can we meet again? We had the conversation, we went through things, gave her a reassurance, tweaked maybe meal timing and a slight amount of nutrients. And I just said, look, there's a bit too much fiber in that meal there, just in terms of pre-exercise, just there's a couple of small things. She said, you know, when can we meet again? And I said, six weeks suit, went into the conversation uh, again in six weeks time. And I said, Brida, I said, I don't know if I'm offering much value here for you. And she took a breath and she said, Daniel, I have nobody else to talk to about this. Mm. This is one of the most important aspects of my whole performance strategy. I'm looking for improvements. She said, you have no idea how important this nutrition conversation is. She said, you are giving me peace of mind. Mm. You are bringing such incredible value and confidence to my plan. Yeah. And you... It was just one of those things where you massively undervalue how important the confidence aspect is. And it's not just about the nutrients, the meal timing. It's about giving that person the reassurance that this is what they should be doing. So that person taught me something hugely. Um, That's one. The other one was in an elite athlete environment. I was a very young practitioner. And one of the most high profile athletes I've worked with had a really good uh, result in one of his assessments, one of his performance assessments. And I said, good job. No high fiving, no whoa, no clapping, no whatever. And he said in response, that's the first time I've ever achieved that result. And all you can say is good job. And it made me realize I was trying to play it cool. You know, I was trying to be controlled and professional. That's not what he wanted. He wanted the acknowledgement. And I think that's something, another big, big, big part of what I do 
and I, that I'm constantly reminding myself was, is back to, you know, that conversation with Brita, you have to celebrate this stuff. People put so much time and energy into it. And now I'm like, when I hear this kind of stuff, I am I honestly in my meetings, even online, you'll see me with the two arms in the air. I'm like, I'm <laughs> punching the air. I'm giving people because that's how I feel. Yeah. That's how I feel. It's not good job. Well done. It's yeah. oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. I could hug you yeah. because that's, that's, that's what people need. And yeah. they need that, that uh, celebration of, of what they've done. So they're my two anecdotes and what have shaped my practice. Dale, thanks very much for your time. I will Pleasure. link all the books and resources in the description and people can delve more into the stuff that we've been chatting about. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Complete Performance Podcast with your host, Dr. Josh Williamson. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Daniel and you can take away some lessons to help improve your daily performance. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Instagram at Dr. Josh Williamson as well as check out all of the links and resources in the show notes. Thanks again and I'll see you in the next one.